Hey, you're listening to the Creative Pep Talk podcast. This show exists to help you build a thriving creative career. I'm your host, Andy J. Pizza. You can stay up to date with all things Creative Pep Talk by following me on Instagram at Andy J. Pizza. Let's get into today's episode. So we got our first Factor Meals, and I am pumped to tell you about them. First off, we absolutely loved them. Delicious chef's kiss for the chef-crafted, dietitian-approved meals that come straight to your door. I can definitely see how when deadlines are out of control or you're in a super busy season, how Factor Meals can lighten your load while still giving you options like veggie, vegan, and even low-calorie Get as much or as little as you need by choosing 6 to 18 meals per week. Plus, you can even pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup. Head to factormeals.com slash peptalk50 and use code peptalk50 to get 50% off. That's code peptalk50 at factormeals.com slash peptalk50 to get 50% off. Friends, it's episode 200, 200 episodes of Creative Pep Talk. I cannot even believe it. I've been doing this show for almost four years. For almost four years, I've been releasing a new podcast nearly every week. It's freaking insane. Can't believe it. So, of course, today is an extremely special episode. Before I tell you about that, I just want to let you know that I have launched a new version of my shop on Etsy. Uh, That's where I'm going to have my main shop now, my only shop, creativepeptalk.etsy.com. We are going to have the Creative Career Path handbooks up there now so you can go get those if you miss the kickstarter right now we also have new pins and some some new jazz going in there so go check it out at creativepeptalk.etsy.com so today's episode is super special You guys all know that I'm crazy about the hero's journey. You're probably sick of hearing about it, uh, but I'm not going to give up anytime soon. It's a big part of my life. In the hero's journey, you might not know this, but the hero starts at home and then they return to home, a.k.a. Frodo starts in the Shire and then he returns to the Shire at the end. Well, this isn't the end of creative pep talk, but it is a really massive milestone, so I thought it could be a little bit of a return to home. And here's how we're going to do it. This episode is a tribute to my hometown, Columbus, Indiana. Now, I know that's a little bit confusing because I live in Columbus, Ohio. You know, I have to have this conversation nearly every day, but I'm from Columbus, Indiana. I, I was born near there, and I spent many formative years living in Columbus, Indiana. Now, you may not know this, but Columbus, Indiana is kind of a architecture and design mecca. In the mid-century, there was this visionary guy named J. Irwin Miller. No relation to me, I wish. Uh, Just a coincidence. But he brought the world's best architects and designers to come in and design public offices, churches, banks, and schools. Everyone from I.M. Pei to Aero Saarinen. 
And for you designers out there, you might be surprised to know that the original brand identity for Columbus, Indiana, the town, was designed by none other than American godfather of design, Paul Rand. Rand actually designed several identities for the town, and on top of that, my favorite designer and illustrator, Alexander Gerard, was the interior designer of Jay Irwin's famous Miller House. Contributed, he, he contributed original designs to the house and uh, all kinds of interesting interior elements uh, and also some other contributions to the town. If you don't know Alexander Gerard, I highly recommend you check out his work as gorgeous. So, funnily enough, those two designers, Rand and Gerard, became my favorite designers while I was studying in college in the UK, and I didn't have any knowledge of them while I was in high school in Columbus, Indiana. And anybody that knows my work knows that they're big influences on my work. The mid-century is a massive part of my work, and I must have to have soaked some of this in through osmosis while I was growing up there because it's had a big impact on my artistic voice. So, what does that have to do with today's episode? Well, today we have arguably the world's most influential living designer on the show, Michael Beirut. Yes, Michael Beirut, he's on the show. Here's how that happened. There's a fairly new organization in Columbus, Indiana that's uh, picked up the mid-century torch of design excellence called Exhibit Columbus. They have a national symposium every year, and this year Michael Beirut's going to be speaking there alongside other high-profile guests from the design, arts, and architecture worlds. And I got connected with them, and I got a shot to have Michael on the show, and I am thrilled about it. So Michael Beirut doesn't need an introduction, but in case... Design really isn't your thing. Here I go. Michael is a Michael Beirut is a partner at Pentagram, the world's largest independent design consultancy. Michael is responsible for countless world-class design achievements, the environmental graphics of the New York Times building, the Atlantic magazine redesign, the new Verizon logo, just to name a few. He also has a super delightful TED Talk with a million plus views and much, much much more awards and accomplishments than I can really list here. By the way, if you want to find out more about Columbus, Indiana, Exhibit Columbus, and their 2018 National Symposium on Art, Design, and Architecture, visit ExhibitColumbus.org or check out the link in the show notes. So, without further ado, here is my conversation with the remarkable and deeply insightful Michael Beirut. Michael Beirut, thanks for being here. Andy, it's a pleasure. So, uh, I've been a fan of your work for pretty much my entire career, and so this is a big honor to have you on the show. And I grew up near and in Columbus, Indiana, and one thing I just found out is that you were on the team that designed the Columbus Regional Hospital brand, which is Uh, funny because, yeah, um, my wife actually worked there, and on several occasions, I pointed out how fantastic I thought the brand was, and I had no idea you, you guys did that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no. Uh, interestingly enough, that was um, one of my first, maybe my first substantial project when I joined Pentagram in 1990. Um, I um, I had worked uh, 
before then for 10 years in New York for a designer named Massimo Vignelli. And uh, during that period, I had met um, a lot of architects because he had a lot of architects as his clients. And one of them was Robert A.M. Stern, who, as you probably know, is the architect of um, Columbus Regional Hospital. And mm-hmm. when um, uh, they were um, pushing the, put, excuse me, when they were putting the finishing touches on the design of that building, um, we got called about uh, the potential of doing a new brand for it, doing the signage for the building, et cetera. So uh, uh, that was my first real exposure to Columbus, although because I went to the University of Cincinnati, I had made during my undergraduate years at least one pilgrimage, as one does. Yeah. I was curious if you had known about the history of architecture and design in Columbus, Indiana before that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Is that where, so did they kind of talk to you about it while you were at school and they had an official trip there? Um, I forget, I know, I don't think it was, it was not an official trip. It was like a, a weekend run that we did with some, um, some students from the, uh, school of architecture. Uh, I went to, uh, um, you know, from the architecture department within the school of design, architecture and art where I was, and I was a graphic design major, but I had a lot of friends who were architects. And so, uh, um, we, uh, I think we went up there like one Friday and somehow stayed through Sunday morning or so, but it was, it was, it was great. And I came from, uh, um, I'm a Midwesterner myself. I came from, uh, suburban Cleveland, but I would say that, um, you know, the idea of, how do I put this? Like, does, you know, architecture as its own statement, as a contemporary idea, was something that you had to look hard to find in Ohio, in my opinion, uh, in, um, in Cleveland or Columbus, Ohio or Cincinnati. Um, there was, certainly there wasn't a lot of evidence of great modern architecture in any of those cities while I was growing up. Although looking back, there were some things that I missed that I uh, have come to appreciate, um, you know, uh, since I've uh, moved away, but uh, nothing like Columbus where there's just this conviction that great architect where great architecture and great design can actually make uh, um, a place uh, special and make life better for the people that live there. Yeah, it's a really unique place. And actually, uh, I grew up there and I didn't really know anything about the history until after I left. So I went to college in the UK. And it was while I was in the UK that I became really obsessed with Paul Rand and Alexander Mm -hmm. Gerard. And it's funny that maybe through osmosis, they, they both have a pretty decent history of work in Columbus, Indiana. And it must've been just like an environmental impression on me because it clearly had a big impact on my taste in illustration and design. Yeah. And it was also a moment of real, um, a real confidence in kind of, um, you know, America and American design and as design as a, instrument of American progress that I, that I'm not sure, you know, has ever really stood as tall as it did in, you know, those days in mid-century America where, uh, so much of the real iconic, uh, 
buildings we think of that we associate with Columbus, Indiana, and and elsewhere, kind of uh, come out. And the idea that it was a that it was a product of um, you know that at least part of the starting point was corporate patronage in the form of um, you know uh, companies like Cummins and uh, you know Irwin Trust and places like that is uh, very much a an idea uh, that you know gave us among other things the Aspen Design Conference and uh, the Institute of Design in uh, in Chicago. You know all you know all of them were based on this conviction that business people and cultural figures and citizens could all come together to kind of make, 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 make the world a better place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, I, yeah, it feels very foreign and it seems like sometimes when I look back at that, I wonder how, how everything progressed to get here, but I'm not going (laughs) to fall off that cliff right now, but, uh, (laughs) and I want to circle back to talking about Columbus later, Mm -hmm. but, for a minute, I just want to talk about design. So I, I'm an illustrator, and I have a degree in graphic design. And uh, I, I find design and its kind of strategic nature to be a really good tool for any creative. And you're kind of famous. Like I found this. Uh, no, you are very famous in design. That's not what I'm saying. But you're f- kind of famous for saying this quote. Everywhere I looked in my research, it kept coming up, and it said. Uh, you said that probably the most interesting thing I learned is that a lot of the things about design that tend to get designers really interested aren't that important. And I wondered if you could kind of unpack what that means in relationship to what you think of as good design. Um, Andy, that's a great question. Thanks. And it's, I think it reflects a little bit how I've changed and matured over the course of my own career in my own life. Um, I think when I graduated uh, from design school, you know, back in 1980, a long time ago at this point, you know, nearly 40 years ago, um, you know, I was, uh, I was like, you know, as a true believer, I, I burned with passion about design and passion for the craft of design. You know, I had mastered painstakingly, you know, through years of study at that point and years of practice, you know, the fine points of typography and, uh, you know, resolving the relationship of form and working with, uh, um, you know, space and scale and all the tools one has as a designer or an illustrator or an artist. And um, I was actually... um, uh, just surprised in a way, uh, although I shouldn't have been, but I, it was sobering to get in the real world and realize that, uh, um, you know, the world doesn't respond overtly to attention to craft, or so it seemed to me then. You know, they actually cared just more about, you know, was this thing in the world helping them, you know, solve some some problem in their life was doing some job they needed to have done right so um you know i remember like thinking you know i spent so much time belaboring over the position of the page numbers in a book and the people with the book in their hand just want to read the words and look at the pictures they're not marveling over the ingenuity by which i position the page numbers right so, so I, had, I, I think first I had this reaction thinking, oh, you know, all that attention to craft, it's, uh, 
it's certain like nothing I would disavow or ignore, but it was it I'd real you know I realized first that we that there was a, a responsibility you had one had as well not to just one's craft or some abstract idea of perfection, um, but your responsibility is also to people who are going to be working with the material you have, working with the material that you're. Uh, uh, you know, working with the designs that you're creating, who have to live with it, who have to use it, you know, wh- what are they going to make of it? And, um, and I think, um, uh, to my credit, I didn't let that realization become, um, drive me to a position of cynical pragmatism, which I think can easily happen. You know, you can just sort of think, well, all this is nonsense, all this like stuff, all these details I've been fretting about. Uh, one thing is I really enjoyed fretting about the details regardless, but I sort of realized you sort of had to serve all sorts of multiple masters. You had to satisfy the client. If you were working on, you know, for a client, you had to think of the people who would be using the thing you were designing in the end, but then also you had to give yourself pleasure and a sense of pride in what you were doing. And um, as I went along, I, I kind of came to realize, in fact, that I that 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 original kind of uh, um, sense of backlash that I had against, you know, kind of the, the, the maniacal attention to detail that I had learned in school. Um, I actually have come to think that that actually is communicated somehow to people who may not be able to, um, you know, overtly perceive, you know, those details who actually aren't sufficiently often you can't expect them to be sufficiently uh, uh, educated or sophisticated in visual manners to discern the difference between one typeface and another. Um, But I do think they can tell if someone cared enough to take time about the choices, you know, that someone's worried about this stuff for them. And I think, you know, if, if you go anywhere, if you go into a store, if you're sitting at a restaurant and something's put in front of you to eat, um, you know, if you, you know, if you, you know, no matter where you are, you can kind of tell is, is, has someone taken care with this or not? Or is this kind of like a careless thing that no one really is thinking about, that they're just kind of trying to discharge as quickly and efficiently as possible. I think the latter thing is, um, you know, it's a missed opportunity in the responsibility that we all have to care for each other. And conversely, if you sort of put some thoughtfulness and care in the things that you're creating that's supposed to be shared with other people, whether or not they get every detail, whether or not they appreciate all the extra hours you spent doing the things just to make it ever so much more extra, extra special. You know, I think that, um, uh, they may not be able to enumerate those hours or really be able to articulate what it was they did, but I still think they get some sense of, uh, of, um, of what, uh, of, they get some sense that another person has cared about this enough to worry about the details. I was listening to a podcast actually that is uh, conducted every week uh, by the people that make the television show Better Call Saul. It's if you care about like television and uh, filmmaking, it's actually kind of interesting because they'll have you know the showrunners and the writers and the editors and the production designers and things just kind of dissecting the episode that just aired the night before usually. And one of them, I think it was Vince Gilligan, the guy who created that show and its predecessor, Breaking Bad. Um, someone was saying, you know, we spend so much time 
with props and with production design, getting everything exactly right, hours and hours and hours, just kind of like making things down to levels of detail that go, you know, that, that, that on one hand they say are necessary because, you know, with high res video, you can freeze something and you can tell whether or not that's real writing on the fake newspaper. So in some ways you have to do it. But I think Vince Gilligan said at the end of the day, though, if you don't care about it, why should anyone else care about it? And that really struck me. And I realized that as a designer, that is something you can, those are words to live by and words to die by if you want. You know, if you don't care about it, why should anyone else? And so it's really up to you to care about it. So I've kind of gone full circle, I think, from where I started, or at least from where I was when I was saying designers care about the things that no one else cares about. I do think we tend to get, you know, it's not healthy to be obsessed with, you know, just our own image in the mirror and what other designers think. We really do have to care about what, um, you know, what the people that use our work and need and need our work think about it and how they use it and what they do with it when they uh, when they use it. But I do think that our responsibility is just not simply to fulfill the function that, uh, uh, you know, create things that fulfill the function to which uh, has been assigned to the things we're creating, but also do it in a way that is special and memorable, provides a little bit of joy and comfort if we can. Mm, that's, yeah, that makes sense. And I think it sounds like you're saying that maybe they don't care about what you care about, but they care about the fact that you care. Yeah. Like they can feel that. I made a long speech, but you just said it much more efficiently. Thanks. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, uh, it's, that's really good. And I think, uh, this next question kind of jumps off of that and, uh, it requires a little bit of setting up. So excuse the kind of long intro, but, uh, the full title of your book is How to Use Graphic Design to Sell Things, Explain Things, Make Things Look Better, Make People Laugh, Make People Cry, and Every Once in a While Change the World. And it reminds me of this working scientific definition of creativity that says creativity is something that is both novel and useful. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, when I'm working with creative people, I feel like a lot of creative people find it easy to work in the novel, but turning it into a career means taking that novelty and making it useful. And and in your, in that subtitle of your book, you talk about making people laugh or cry or change the world or, or whatever. And these things are making useful design. Mm -hmm. And is that, is that kind of right? Yeah. I think that, that, um, that tension between, um, those two things, what's useful and what's novel, kind of play into two things that that people actually want out of life when you think about it. And, you know, this is actually uh, uh, an insight that uh, that's associated with the uh, designer Raymond Lowy, who was a contemporary of some of the others we've already mentioned today. Uh, um, and he had this principle that was... Uh, called M-A-Y-A, Most Advanced Yet Acceptable. And he sort of felt that a successful design that he would approach would be like the most advanced thing he could create that would still be acceptable to the greatest number of people. And what what, what he was responding to in that formulation is this idea that each of us have within us this kind of... um, 
this 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 urge for two things that are contradictory. On one hand, we want comfort and familiarity. You know, um, you sort of want to know you can rely on things to be where you expect to find them. That the thing that lo- if something looks a certain if something looks like something, it probably is that thing. If something usually works a certain way, this thing's going to work that way. And that actually is how we navigate life. And, and it's sort of what utility is based on, right? You know, it's, it's, you know, as we grow up from babies to toddlers to kids to, uh, uh, to adults, what we're kind of learning is what cues we're supposed to derive from the conventions of the world and how we sometimes we're learning how to do something very specific, like drive a car. Other times it's sort of like, you know, how do you behave when you're meeting someone new? Do you shake their hand? Do you say your name and their name and look them in the eye? What kind of, you know what I mean? It's all the, you know, and those are all just, that's learned behavior. There's nothing intuitive about that, right? And in fact, uh, you know, what helps us function as a society is that all of us have kind of learned similar behavior. We're not all just freestyling crazy responses to what happens when you start a car and begin driving or what happens when you meet someone at a party, right? Um, on the other hand, um, if your whole life is filled with nothing but reliable, comforting, uh, you know, everyday, same as the next habituation, you end up getting bored, you know, and you end, you know, you get crazy from the boredom. So then you start wanting things that are new and interesting and surprising, right? And so, you know, the countervailing impulse that you have to the need for comfort and familiarity is for novelty and surprise, right? And so, you know, and, and I think people sit different places along that spectrum, but everyone kind of balances those two things in their lives. And, you know, in the same way, if, if you had a steady diet of nothing but novelty, nothing but surprise, you know, you just would be so exhausted you know, by lunchtime, the first day of the week that you couldn't get all the way to Friday, just too much surprise, too much novelty, right? So um, um, designers really have to figure out a way to navigate between those two poles. And a lot of times, one of the things you find yourself doing as a designer is either taking the familiar part of something and making it surprising or figuring out a way to take something surprising and make it seem more familiar, right? And so you're always kind of like, balancing out those two things, putting just enough surprise that people are intrigued, uh, just enough familiarity that people understand what they're meant to do with the thing you're designing. But if you keep the two things in balance, you deliver something that you could call a successful design. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think uh, something I run into all the time with creative people is they seem like they're on one side of that spectrum or the other and walking that tightrope is something they try to, or they, they is a hard, it's kind of a non-dual thing to grasp this idea that you, it's, it's not about completely fitting into the point where you're just copying the status quo. And it's also about just dramatically standing out to the point where you're not even registering as being part of something. Uh, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, and I think the, um, um, the, um, you know, not every designer has to wear both those hats, of course. You know, one of the marvelous things about the world is that there are so many different kinds of people in it. And even within the world of design, you have some designers who actually dedicate themselves to delivering surprise and novelty and others who sort of see themselves more as 
nose to the grindstone problem solvers who just really try to figure out how to how to how to do what's expected better than anyone's ever done it before, right? So if you're commissioning someone to design, you know, hospital signs, let's say, um, if it's signage for a hospital, you actually don't want this novelty surprise. You know, hey, I've never seen it done this way before. You've got a lot of people who are in a stressful, potentially stressful state of mind. And uh, uh, sometimes, you know, time is of the essence and every second counts. You don't want people deciphering, um, you know, uh, you know, which way to radiation oncology, right? You just want them to be able to find it and, in fact, do everything in your power to make that experience as comforting and as, you know, um, easeful as possible. You know, on the other hand, if you're doing, um, uh, you know, you could be doing signs in a uh, children's museum, let's say, and you really want each of those experiences, you know, these are an audience who might, you know, still be learning how to read or learning the joy you can take in words. Each one of those signs might be done completely differently, just so you notice that, you know, the up elevator sign, the upstairs sign versus the downstairs sign, the exit, the exit signs, each one of them are kind of like dramatizing, sort of making a learning moment out of each one of these like uh, everyday experiences, right? So you could go completely another direction with that. And um, some designers are able to, you know, switch gears and design a hospital on Monday and a children's museum on Wednesday. But on the other hand, sometimes you'd want to have one kind of designer do the first thing and another kind of designer do the second thing. So I don't think everyone's got to be able to have this complete virtuosic, uh, uh, you know, uh, flexibility and kind of be able to cover all bases. But I think sort of knowing what job is right for you and understanding what the job requires of you is an important aspect of being a designer and a responsible one, I think. Kind of combining both of these questions, you talking about going full circle, uh, and it kind of seems like the trajectory is at the start, you saw the craft of design almost as the means and the end, where later you see it as the end being the results and it being useful to the audience, and then coming full circle saying that the craft is the means to get to that end of useful uh, design. I think, do you, uh, I'm sure over time you have learned how to elicit a response, you know, making useful design, making people, making design that really works, that gets results, whether that's making people laugh or cry or whatever. Uh, What have you learned? What have you learned about, kind of being strategic, like reverse engineering an end with a design. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. And it's actually, it's a, it's actually a fairly, um, it's a difficult question. And I think that different designers have different ways of thinking about it, different ways of answering it. Um, um, you do have to first, you know, be sure you're as clear as you can be about, um, you know, what contribution are you being asked to make to a situation, right? And, you know, sometimes you are being asked to, to, to be a star to deliver the, you know, the closing number in a big dramatic concert with, you know, all spotlights trained on you. 
sometimes as a designer, I'm playing, you know, second violin. I'm just contributing as a member of a team to an experience which is a lot larger than my contribution and which will benefit from my contribution, but requires a contribution and coordination with a bunch of other people as well. Right. And so, um, uh, and I can be very content in either of those roles, depending on, uh, as long as I feel like that, that, that I'm, that I'm the best person to play that role, you know, and I can, I, I don't need to be the star. I can be a contributor and it's, it's fine. Um, and then also I think, um, if when I'm sort of like, if I'm in a position where I'm trying to determine, um, you know, just basically what, what, in a general sense, what kind of effect am I being asked to, um, uh, to create for a particular situation, um, that's, that's really, um, that, that might be the fundamental question I ask myself when I'm working on a project, you know, um, is, um, you know, if I'm designing a brand and packaging for a new medical device, am I like, who, who's going to actually encounter this thing? Who gets to decide? Is it really just specified by doctors or clinicians, or is this something where a patient or a consumer is going to get to pick between several different options? If it's the latter, you know, am I trying to inspire you know, scientific confidence, or am I trying to make this thing feel like it's easier to use and kind of friendlier? Am I trying to make this thing feel like it's uh, um, you know, a next generation thing in a category that feels very tired, you know? And so you sort of like, you, you find yourself, I, I, I ask myself a lot of those questions as a way to set the parameters for what our design exploration will be. And of course, it's not just me kind of, you know, sitting alone in a room or looking at the mirror, asking questions. I'm interrogating my, uh, my client, I'm doing research, I'm talking to those users sometimes, just trying to get whatever insights I can get, not to tell me what to design, but to actually clearly delineate the contours, if you will, of the problem that I've been asked to solve. Um, and so th th that's, I'd say that's like almost the, what I would call myself, what I would myself call like kind of the main starting point of every design I do is just figuring out uh, this thing that I'm doing, how is it meant to fit within the world? Yes. Yeah. I find that uh, to be, it sounds like you're saying getting really clear about what the end is that you're trying to achieve and then working backwards from that. Right, right, right. Yes. And I actually think I've found that that apply, even though I know that's like kind of canon for the design process, uh, part of the reason why I wanted to ask you that is because whether you're a designer or, you know, I find it really interesting that comedians have such a high level of craft. And I always yeah. think it has something to do with the design component where they're really, really clear on the yeah, problem yeah. they're trying to solve. Uh, and so it, it just gives them a target to hit. Oh, absolutely. And that sounds yeah. like what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. No, I wrote an essay about that once. Uh, there was a, uh, oh, really? yeah, there was a special that was on HBO where it was four comedians talking shop basically. And I know one was Jerry Seinfeld. Another one was, uh, before his, uh, disgrace with Louis CK. Another one was, uh, uh, I forget who the other oh, one was Chris Rock. And they were 
it was really interesting. I read, and, and the essay I wrote was like the design lessons that they kind of imparted as they were talking about their own craft. And there, there is a number of things that I think go exactly what you're saying, Andy. Like one is that um, um, you, you discover right away that although, you know, each of them um, kind of affect on stage or in performance, this kind of, uh, um, you know, I'm relaxed up here and I'm making up as I go along. Um, the, the material that they're using is all like completely structured, you know, and I think Jerry Steinfeld calls it steel in the walls. You know, it's, it's like, has to be, you know, you can kind of like dress it up any way you want, but underneath it has to be something that's like so completely reliably bulletproof that you know that the structure is going to work, whether you've got an enthusiastic audience or a blase one, whether you're in a big crowd or a small one, right? Um, so, and that's very similar to what I do as a designer or what I think all designers do is, you know, really before you begin, you can't begin with the decorative grace note. You have to kind of satisfy yourself that you understand what the underlying structure of the work you're doing has to, uh, what form that has to take for the rest of it to kind of succeed. Um, likewise, they talked a lot about the value of practicing and you know how hard it is to do anything creative and how many times you have to uh, fail before you succeed and I think that every designer will be familiar with that and I think uh, uh, they talk as well about the you know the feedback you get from an audience and how important that is and the the fact that you know if you're you know, and like a lot of designers, I've thought a lot about the difference between being a designer and being a fine artist. And I think artists, you know, in my imagination, they get to work without, you know, they get to, they, they're primarily satisfying themselves and they're primarily trying to explore um, a vision that can be as private as they want it to be, right? Um, but designers are actually always on assignment, uh, and that assignment almost always involves other people that have to be satisfied, um, you know, customers or clients or consumers or audiences or however you want to define them, right? And in fact, the, the design doesn't really, isn't complete until it's actually being experienced by those people. In the same way, you know, comedians, you know, you can't do comedy, you know, you, you can play the piano in a, in a, in a, in a, in a closed room and practice as much as you want, but you sort of can't do comedy by yourself in front of a mirror. You need that audience to respond to what you're saying, to understand, to understand whether it works in the same way. I think design needs an audience, uh, um, or else we don't know whether it works. So, yeah, I, I saw that special. Uh, I watched it probably two or three times. Uh, I was, yeah, you know the one I'm talking about, right? Yes. Yeah. And, uh, what, is there a place online that can, people can find that essay? Yeah, I'll, I'll send you. I'll send you a link to that essay. Okay, fantastic. Uh, I don't want to check that out. So, uh, I'm going to switch gears a little bit here. I'm always trying to help creative people understand their real gifts and talents, and help them help that influence the path that they choose. I find that a lot of creative people are overwhelmed by trying to choose a path, and with that in mind. What are the raw qualities that you think make a good designer? And said in a different way, are there qualities you look for when you're hiring somebody? 
Yeah, I think there's two main things, and I think I'll give you the same answer to both those questions, what I look for and what I think is actually a prerequisite for success. Um, The first one is um, to really need to work, want to work, like to work. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean kind of like stay late hours working for me because I'm a demanding taskmaster if I'm hiring someone. (laughs) I just mean like you just really like just love doing you know, design work, if that's, yeah. what, if that's what you are. If you're a designer, you just love doing design work and you'll look for every chance to do it. You'll do it at the slightest pretext. You'll, you know, you'll, if, if, if you have something and you do it too fast, you'll take the time you save to do it again a few times just to see what other ways you can do it, right? I mean, people like that are always going to be, um, uh, uh, you know, I think are always going to do well. Um, and I, and I think that it's, um, and if you're like that, generally, um, it's giving you pleasure to do that work, to make those things and the pleasure you're taking in it can be infectious. And in fact, you're taking that pleasure on behalf of an anticipation of the audience that will ultimately experience the thing you're designing. So that's just a great state of mind to be in. It's, um, uh, it's, I think, and, and conversely, I think it's really tough to be a designer and to do it for long if you don't have that capacity for just taking pleasure in doing the work and yeah. getting addicted to that, um, that, that, that pleasure that you receive from it. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing, and this I think is really particular to graphic designers specifically, but I think it has to do perhaps with all designers at one level or another. Um, I think it's, it's really, I look for people and I think most of the successful designers I know are people who are genuinely curious and interested about the worlds that they're being introduced into as, you know, designers, right? If, you know, if, if, if you're a working graphic designer and, um, uh, well, I mean, the way I, I put it very simply, I say, you, you know, you work best on things that you're interested in, right? Mm-hmm. And to me, that sort of sets up this challenge because um, I, I think most people would say that's true. And I found that was true about myself. And then what I discovered was, um, you know, if you're interested in only a few things, you could say, well, I just care about, you know, skateboarding so I, i'm going to make all my clients be skateboarders i'm going to do all my work for you know skate i'll decorate skateboards and i'll do graphics for skateboard parks and my dream will be to work for a big skateboard company or design a skateboard magazine yeah. um that's i think that's fine you could do that and some people actually that that's like a career path that's not actually i'm people have taken career paths that are like that right but imagine though that you use design as a way to learn about things that you know nothing about that in fact you don't you don't wake up in the morning having you know uh knowing anything about say uh you know say uh, um um, you know, particle mechanics or something, I don't even know if that is a thing, molecular biology, I don't know, making yeah. some stuff, you know, but, um, um, I'm, I, you know, I, I was not a STEM person in school. I didn't get that far in math or science. I was definitely an art person, but when I, you know, I got an assignment from MIT media lab and got to spend a lot of time with, uh, 
you know, the, the teachers and the scientists there. And you get exposed to all these remarkable things, some of which I'll never really fully understand, but all of which are incredibly fascinating and eye-opening. And I think, you know, I, you don't have to master all those things to be a good designer. What you have to do is, um, uh, you know, call up within yourself the curiosity you're hoping to inspire in other people, right? And so the other thing I look for is a capacity for that kind of curiosity. Um, and when I'm looking at a portfolio, I'll always, if someone has, you know, redesigned a bunch of book covers, I'll always ask them about the books. Do you like that? What do you know about that book? Do you like that book? And some, then there's a big difference in my mind between someone who, you know, the people I would never hire are people who sort of are like, oh, the, you know, the teacher assigned those to me and they seem boring, but I try to make them interesting, you know? Oh, um, you know, to me, that's not as good an answer as um, I'd never heard of them, but I read them all from cover to cover and I became the biggest fan and got really into it. And that's why I did so many versions of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, what you want is that second person, the person who's going to throw themselves into it, not do research because it's simply the first step. They're told it's the first step in the design process, but get genuinely engaged with the subject matter that uh, we're being asked to communicate and get enthusiastic about it and want to kind of communicate that enthusiasm to other people who like us, uh, the way we once were, we didn't know anything about it. They don't know anything about it. Now we want to turn them on to it. And to me, if you can kind of get people that are curious and excited like that, uh, they make great employees. And also I would say that they're likely to be successful designers too. Okay, so you've worked with uh, a large number of dream clients and won hundreds of awards, and you know you're in this really great place in your career. And I wondered if at this stage are you still excited about design, and if so, it's kind of a three parter. Are you still excited? What are you excited about? And any tricks to staying excited after you reach some career? milestones um yes i'm still excited um i've um um you know i've one of the things that is great for me in you know my career i've worked here at pentagram now for going on 28 years and what makes it what's made that possible is two things first um uh the way the firm's organized i've had an ever-changing and um, ever more interesting group of partners that I work with here. I started, I was the uh, fourth or fifth partner in a firm that had been uh, here in New York since uh, 1980 when I joined in 1990. And now I'm uh, uh, the most long-standing partner of the eight in the office. The other seven partners have all joined since I joined. The ones who invited me to join have all retired. And so kind of the, the, the business itself, the, the, the cast of characters has changed, you know, which has been exciting for me. Even more exciting is the fact that I've had so many brilliant younger designers working on my team through the years over those past uh, three decades. Um, you know, and many of them have gone on to uh, great things. But before they did that, they um, spent time here at Pentagram and inspired me. Um, and change the way that I work, actually, uh, as I collaborate with them and, then, and as I'll work with my team on projects, the points of view that they'll bring to bear on the process will be very different from, 
you know, what I might be inclined to do. And I've learned from that. And I think I've managed to, I hope I get good work from them, but I know that they've made my work and my thinking sharper. Um, all that said, I think that, uh, you know, early on in my career, I had moments of real discovery and breakthroughs. And I think they come fast and furious at the beginning when you're so, you know, you have a period where you just kind of can't get anything to work. Then finally, you start to master your craft and get confidence in your ability. And then it, you can go through a period where it seems like, you know, every other day you're doing something really exciting. And then you get good at it. And the danger is that, uh, um, you know, you start to repeat yourself. So I think one of the tricks is to, uh, you know, try to look for new challenges and try to avoid doing um the same kinds of projects over and over again and it's hard to do because uh, to a certain degree that's what the world wants you to do you know you get a reputation for something and people just want more of the same right and not only that but you've gotten good at delivering it and you can do it pretty efficiently and it's not a bad way to make money to be known for doing something to deliver it efficiently and to get paid for it that's sort of um some business schools would tell you that's that's exactly what you should be aiming for right yeah i think designers are different though i think designers like to keep themselves in a state of perpetual naivete and um that's the place where you're most likely to make interesting discoveries right and i think um as i've gotten older and progressed in the work that i'm doing i find that uh um, um, you know, I can get excited by different aspects of projects and then, you know, suddenly I can just, you know, all of a sudden I'll be working on something and you'll sort of see a way to just kind of like do something really cool. And that feeling is exactly the same thing that I remember from my school days 40 years ago. I mean, it's no mm. different. Uh, everything else has changed. You know, the world has changed. And certainly the tools and technology we have at our disposal has changed. The nature of the problems have changed. You know, the nature of the audience has changed. But that moment of discovery is um, uh, is exactly kind of the thing that, you know, inspired me and kind of made, you know, was the source of my, you know, original addiction to the whole thing. And uh, just like uh, any other kind of addiction, you kind of keep coming back for it, trying to achieve that original yeah. high, or so I'm told when I've yeah. read about people being addicted yeah. to things. Um, and I right. think uh, that's very true <laughs> with design as well. And so if you find yourself in a place where you're getting people coming to you for the same thing over and over again, what are the ways that you can mix that up that you've found? How have you actively done that? Well, I've been lucky because I'm a partner in a larger firm. Sometimes I'll just say, you know, I'm not sure I've got an original way to look at this anymore. And I'll just kind of like pass it on to one of my partners who might be hungry to undertake that exact same challenge. Right. Um, so, or, or I could even um, uh, recommend another firm to do it. I mean, it sounds like the most obvious thing in the world, just say no. But, um, but it's, a, it's, a, it's a really great, you know, you know the one thing I'd, I'd suggest to anyone who's doing, you know, a professional in an enterprise that's, you know, creative in a professional context is sort of doing everything you can to 
um, to be in a position where you're able to be selective about the work that you do. And I don't mean being picky necessarily, but, um, you know, or just kind of like saying, oh, I won't do things unless they meet these criteria. I just think sort of being able to really look honestly at, um, at a client who wants you to, who has a problem or has an assignment and kind of think, am I really the right person for this? Uh, would they be better served by someone else? Do they really need this work done at all? Do they need something completely different? Um, if so, am I the right person for that? You know, and I think um, if, if all you're trying to do is, um, uh, you know, that runs counter, in fact, to the thing I said before about a hunger to do design work. A lot of times that overwhelms that. Someone walks in, represent a, they represent a chance to work. It's hard to resist just jumping in and doing that work. But I think particularly if, um, if you sort of get over that part of the learning curve where you've really mastered something to the point where it's become a little bit too second nature, um, I'll do several things. I mean, like the most likely thing is just pass it to someone who I think could really benefit from it, which is a, perceived as an act of generosity, but really it's just me being selfish and not wanting to, you know, be bored. Uh, but I think uh, the, the other thing to do is to sort of do what you can to take that opportunity to redefine the problem. And that's, that's like actually a bigger, more daring leap to make because what you're doing there in effect is you're challenging. If someone's come to you with, a, with, with to, to do something that you've done, you know, a bunch of times before, chances are that everyone else is sort of like being asked to do things, that same thing, the same way again and again and again. And it may very well be a situation that's really ripe to be rethought from scratch. And, you know, the real exciting breakthroughs that happen in work, actually, when I think, you know, when I think about it in that context, what makes it interesting to do something for the first time is, so, is like sometimes you don't even know how it's supposed to be done. You know, you have no idea how these things are done. You, you know, you're, you don't have the vocabulary to even have a coherent conversation about it. The misunderstandings you have in taking down the assignments sometimes lead to breakthroughs because you're forced to think it through in a more painstaking way. And um, all of that has to do with simply, um, you know, not kind of like saying, yeah, I got this. I know exactly how to do it. Right. And so I think, um, you know, in theory, you could do that with any problem you had. All you'd have to do is force yourself not to reach for the tool that, you know, does that job reliably, not to come back with the answer that, you know, is the right one before the question's even finished, you know. Um, you know, what's the fun of that really, you know, so, and, and what's the promise of that to, um, uh, to your, the person commissioning the work? Um, I suppose it's reassuring, you know, and sometimes it is reassuring and necessary. You know, if you, if you're sick and you go to a doctor who says, yes, I've seen this a million times on the world specialist of curing this thing, that's a reassuring yeah. bit of news to get, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but, um, <laughs> not, uh, not but I as think, reassuring uh, for them to say, I'm going to try something totally different. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm going to try to be innovative. Uh, well, I mean, uh, if you're desperate, yeah, innovation yeah. is a good thing too. Yeah. But I, but I think on the other hand, if, um, uh, like sometimes I'll just simply say, well, you could, you know, let me tell you what, what, what I know would work and what you could always do. Um, and, and I'll say, and I'll say that to someone, I'll say the problem is that, you know, I know it and chance I can see by the fact you're nodding that you know it and let's face it, everyone knows it. So this is what everyone's doing. 
But is there another way to think about this that's completely different? And most people are interested in talking about that. It takes, again, you sort of are now moving yourself over to the side of the spectrum that's based on novelty, that's based on surprise, that's based on pure invention. That's a tough place to live all the time. And not every situation requires it. But I think uh, um, if you can pick and choose the situations uh, where that sort of approach will really yield the most results, I think that that's a great way to, um, to change it up for yourself and make make uh your experience a lot more interesting yeah that yeah that's really good i think uh back to what you're saying too about being able to say no one of the things i try to encourage creative people to do is move beyond just surviving a lot of creative people i know they want to dip their toes into business or or whatever just to the point of survival but without you know, lots of opportunities coming your way, you're not putting yourself in a position to be able to turn down the wrong things. And if you can get that stuff coming at you regularly, consistently, you you really get to exercise more of that control. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so I have just one more question for you. You're going to be speaking at the Columbus Design Symposium, and I'm really excited about it. You know, I like I said, I grew up there. I was uh, in college. I got lit on fire about the mid-century design that was happening there, and I've always been enthusiastic about them picking up the torch, and Landmark Columbus has done a ton in that vein. I think you visiting is, is a big part of um, the new history that they're building I was just curious what you can tell us about what you're planning on speaking on. Well, when I got the invitation, uh, uh, my first reaction, I saw the other speakers. I said, oh, I don't feel qualified to do this. It was about, uh, you know, it was about contributing to, um, you know, how design can contribute to communities and kind of like change cities and the way we live together, right? And there, you know, um, if you're a landscape, my fellow speakers are, you know, architects, landscape architects. And if you're, um, if you know, it's definitely within their, um, their wheelhouse. Uh, I think that uh, um, I was, you know, if I'm designing a logo that floats out there in the ether from designing a book that that's held in someone's hand. Right. But, uh, you know, as I thought about it, I started thinking, well, you know, you know, each one of those things, you know, writing and publishing a book and then buying and reading that book, being out on the street and navigating with signs, uh, um, you know, seeing, you know, being asked to creating something to sell and being persuaded to buy it. Those are all social exchanges that happen between people in, you know, in settings that are about community, right? And a lot of what you're trying to do as you do this, the work that, you know, graphic designers do is create a sense of community. And increasingly, we're creating, excuse me, we're creating virtual communities that can be existing um, only online or only within a social network. Um, sometimes we're creating a system of, of signals of affiliation for people to share if you're designing something for a political campaign. Um, but even if you're doing something as old fashioned as publishing a book, you know, you're kind of creating a way for people to have a common experience by 
um, uh, by going through, by entering the mind of an author and kind of having a, um, uh, you know, a moment of, of enlightenment or escapism, or whatever it is that is happening at the very least between you and the writer of that book. And at a, at a larger scale between you, the writer of the book and everyone else who's reading the book or who's ever read the book, whoever read the book, you know, and then who will ever be able to talk about the book. And so I think um, in an interesting way, in a way that I wasn't expecting, it's not like walking in a public plaza or a public park. It's not like, um, um, kind of being in, um, in shared space in a building or any other piece of architecture. But I think mentally it's part of the, um, infrastructure that, unites us in communities are the ability to share ideas and to communicate those ideas to each other and to kind of apprehend those ideas when they've been put out into the world. And so that's the angle that I hope to be able to talk about um, uh, if I'm not too intimidated to get a word out of my mouth, which might be the case as well. Right. Well, that's that's great. And I, I really, really appreciate your time. This has been an absolute pressure, pleasure. Oh, likewise for me. Thank you so much, uh, Andy. And I uh, look forward to seeing you out there. Massive thanks to Michael Beirut for taking out some time from his extremely busy schedule to come chat with the creative pep talk pepperonis. Uh, we really, really appreciate it. If you want to go check out the Exhibit Columbus 2018 National Symposium, I will have links in the show notes. That's Columbus, Indiana. Just so that you know, I know it's confusing. I live in Columbus, Ohio. Believe me, I have to have this conversation with people almost every day of my life. And yeah, it's become a burden. But we love Columbus, Indiana. And uh, I feel like I must have got some of the goodies from that place just through osmosis because clearly their mid-century vibe has had a massive impact on my taste and career. So thanks, Columbus. Okay. If you want to get your hands on the Creative Career Path Handbook, you can now do so even if you missed the Kickstarter by going to creativepeptalk.com. No, creativepeptalk.etsy, E-T-S-Y, if you've never heard of it, .com. We just launched that shop with all kinds of goodies in there. Super excited about it. Thanks for uh, the theme music, Yoni Wolf and the band Y. Thanks to the soundtrack to Creative Pep Talk, the podcast by my man, Alex Sugg. And he also edits this podcast brilliantly. Alex has made making a podcast way more fun for me because he is an expert on doing the editing, which I am not. So I just record this thing. I send the files over in order to him and he makes it sound super fresh. I love working with Alex and, uh, I, you know, I, I think he's going to get into editing more podcasts and, and make this more of a thing because he's, it's working so well for us. So go check out Alex Sugg and go check out the Creative Pep Talk soundtrack on Spotify or Apple Music. If you need some instrumental tunes to do your heroic creative journey and make your creative work too, go check it out. I'm using it all the time. Thanks for listening and until we speak again stay pepped up <laughs>